hppodcraft.com. There lived in Westphalia, in the castle of the Baron of Thunder Tentronk, a young man on whom nature had bestowed the perfection of gentle manners. His features admirably expressed his soul. He combined an honest mind with great simplicity of heart, and I think it was for this reason that they called him Candide. The old servants of the house suspected that he was the son of the Baron's sister by a respectable, honest gentleman of the neighborhood, whom she had refused to marry because he could prove only seventy-one quarterings, the rest of his family tree having been lost in the passage of time. That is the opening paragraph of Candide by Voltaire, a classic that might be stretching for us, but one we're going to pull in here on HP Podcraft, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Who is that reader? Why, that was good old Levi Nunez. Levi's amazing. He's talented. You might know Levi from his music, his band, Loot the Body, who does Dungeons and Dragons yes. theme songs, but uh, he's branching out into some other stuff. He's going to be doing another piece. I don't know if I'm spoiling anything, but he's working on some songs right now it's going to be kind of a jack jack parsons kind of influenced sort of you know the jpl the sure yeah, i'm a big fan of the the genre of occultist jet propulsion yeah founders well i've been lobbying for candide for quite a while it maybe as you say is a stretch for the show in that candide isn't the first thing that comes to mind when you think about weird fiction but think about this fact hp mm. lovecraft wrote nearly 100,000 letters in his lifetime yeah. That is the second most number of letters written by anyone in recorded history. The first French writer, Voltaire. What? So they are number one and number two in terms of number of letters written by anyone wow. in recorded history. So they have that in common. Is that true? That's absolutely true. Oh yeah, my I'm God. That up. It's relevant to weird fiction and cosmic horror, specifically because, well, just the things that Lovecraft was interested in. You know, his introduction to the Call of Cthulhu is about the central conflict of the Enlightenment, the age that Voltaire comes from. Mm -hmm. Science leading us out of the Dark Ages, but Lovecraft is asking at what cost. Mm. And we know that he loved the 18th century Enlightenment era so much that he was essentially a cosplayer. He wanted to wear those those wigs and those tall beavers and be a part of it. Uh, he affected that 1700s style so much that he actually makes fun of himself about it in a reminiscence of Dr. Samuel Johnson. This is a short story written in 1917 by Lovecraft, published in the September 17 issue of the United Amateur under the pseudonym Humphrey Littlewit, Esquire. <laughs> I'm sure we talk about it. It's we just did. been so many years. Yeah. But it's relevant to this. The story is a spoof of Lovecraft's antiquarian affectations. Little Wit, the narrator, is born August 20th, 1690. So that's 200 years to the day before Lovecraft was born, making him nearly 228 years old as he writes this memoir. But Voltaire, he was born in 1694. So he's making them contemporaries. Lovecraft yeah. would be a senior just as Voltaire's coming in as a freshman. Now, in that story, it says he's talking about Dr. Johnson and the literary club that he hangs out with. Mm -hmm. He says, in this luminous company, I was tolerated more because of my years than for my wit or learning, being no match at all for the rest. My friendship for the celebrated Monsieur Voltaire was ever a cause of annoyance to the doctor, who is deeply orthodox, and who used to save the French philosopher, vir est acaremiates some Latin. But basically what it says is that was somebody who's very intelligent, but had very little education. Ah. Which I think is how Lovecraft felt about himself a bit. I'm an intelligent guy, but I was a little too unorthodox for school society. You're a big fan of this book. How was it given to you? Did Was it a creepy uncle? Was it... <laughs> A teacher? No. I read it in college like I think most people did. Oh. In fact, I was looking up some pronunciations and stuff online, and the first guy that 
he goes, I was a freshman in college when I read Candide. Of course, I went to Catholic college, so I had to write to the local bishop to ask if I could read it oh, because it was on a list of books they weren't supposed to read along <laughs> So, in, and this probably was in the 70s. He had to, in Massachusetts, this guy to write his bishop and ask to read Candide. Oh. So it's still ruffling feathers, apparently. Yeah, I guess But uh, so. the copy I have, it was it cost me $1.88, and on the price tag, it says November 1992. So I was a freshman in college, and probably it was for a survey literature course. Yeah. I actually don't have an association with reading it for a course because it was such a fun read. You right. knocked it out quickly too, right? Oh, yeah. Two sittings. The chapters are very short, but it's pithy and quick and funny, and a lot happens in every chapter. And you're like, well, I'll read one more chapter. Okay, I'll read the next chapter. And then you just, you're just <laughs> right. reading it. Yeah, it's snack size. To me, it made perfect sense to do this right after Clark Ashton Smith's crazy medieval stories, because they almost feel like they're in the same world a little bit as yeah. this book. Voltaire said he wrote philosophical novels. I think that that's what science fiction sort of is. If we think back to when we covered the time machine, there's some candide in there. Science fiction is always looking at the human condition. And the idea of exploration, striking out into the world and seeing all the different ways that people choose to live is just like taking that Star Trek. But actually, on this reading, it really struck me how El Dorado. So El Dorado in Candide, it's the one perfect place they go to. It's technologically advanced. Nobody's hungry, but it's isolated. They don't want immigrants and they don't want to interact with the outside world. It's basically Wakanda from Black Panther. <laughs> yeah. I think this book, you know, it's been oh. continuously in print for 250 years. Yeah. And that's the reason why. We're reading the Norton Critical Edition, which is a translation by Robert M. Adams that I like a lot. I looked at the Gutenberg, you know, you can read it there, but I thought there was better nuance in this one. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I know the original French, but it just, <laughs> I don't know. Just. <laughs> But that Norton Critical Edition has a, a wonderful introduction by the editor, Nicholas Kronk. I just want to say that now because I'm going to quote from it liberally and I don't want to have to set up his, the attribution every time. Yes. Nicholas yes. Kronk did the intro that I think is so great at setting up this book. Why don't you tell me a little about Voltaire? Well, Voltaire is a pen name, not unlike Cher or Madonna. I like how you went for that instead of Mark Twain. That's what everybody always does. Like Mark Twain. Nope. Cher <laughs> or Madonna. It's one name. It is. It's not Voltaire Johnson. Voltaire Johnson. Like Cher. Or Madonna. I did get the name through music, though. I was a fan of the band Cabaret Voltaire mm -hmm. before I knew who Voltaire was. Mm -hmm. But Cabaret Voltaire is named after a World War One era nightclub in, in Zurich that was sort of foundational for the Dada movement and named uh, themselves after Voltaire. Yeah. When I was doing notes for this, I thought, there's no way college was the first time I heard of him, though. And I went and I looked at an old high school textbook. And in fact, when I was in high school, I read a story called Micromegas. Is mm -hmm. that is that right? Yeah, yeah. What is it? What it, that it means mean? it means me little giants. It, it, it's a science fiction book because there's a story where the, he goes to like Saturn or Mars and there's giants on these other planets and there's places where they're small. I guess it's maybe a little Gulliver's Travel. I haven't read it. I've read about it, but it's total sci-fi. Yeah. He was born Francois-Marie Herouet in Paris in 1694 with a lawyer for a father. He was taught Latin, theology, and rhetoric at a very early age. He was also fluent in Italian, Spanish, and English. Because of his natural wit and intelligence. You know, he was favored by nobility. He hung out in those circles, but uh, he was not socially equal, which I think he keenly felt. After school, he wanted to be a writer, but his dad, of course, wanted him to be a lawyer, uh, but he still wrote poetry on the side. And the aristocracy, like you said, they loved his writing. And they thought it was super funny and interesting. So he got pulled into those circles. It just encouraged him to keep doing his shtick. Eventually got a job working as a secretary of the French ambassador to the Netherlands, where he met a Protestant refugee and he had an affair with her and he got in a bunch of trouble for that. And he was sent back to France. Now, because of his writing, this is just the beginning of the trouble that this guy gets in. Because of his writing, he went to prison twice and he was exiled to England once. The first prison stint was because he wrote a verse 
suggesting that the regent had sex with his own daughter. And that got Voltaire 11 months in Bastille, a windowless cell. That's rough, dude. Now, while he was in prison, one of the plays was making the rounds and people were eating it up. And when he got released, the play came out and it was a big hit. So much so that the regent and King George I gave him medals of appreciation. That's a big swing. <laughs> it is. But when you start reading about Voltaire's personal history, his biography here, yeah. this book makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I know. So he started going by Voltaire in 1718 after his release from Bastille. No one's really sure what it means exactly or why he picked it. There's tons of speculation. Everything I read about it was boring. So I just... I'm not going to even talk about it. I think he just picked it because it sounded cool. And it does. In 1726, uh, some noble tried to be smart with Voltaire, but then he made that noble, Rohan was the guy's name, look like an idiot. So Rohan hired some thugs to beat up Voltaire. Again, this feels like <laughs> Candide. These guys beat up Voltaire. Then Voltaire found out who did it. So he challenged Rohan to a duel, but the guy was too chicken and he didn't really want to have a duel with him. So since he was from a powerful family, he had Voltaire arrested and then put back in Bastille in prison. At this point, he's going, I think I might be in prison for the rest of my life. I need to make a deal. And so pulling some strings, he was able to get exiled to England. And so he lived in England for a while, rewriting his stuff in English. He hung out with a lot of luminaries at the time, Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope, Lady Montague. They even think that he might have been at the funeral of Isaac Newton. Hmm. Which is pretty uh, Well, you know, cool. the sexile is really important because in England, he's exposed to a constitutional government, uh, a noble class that obeys the law, more or less, a more tolerant spirit. And uh, the works of John Locke, which he basically introduced to France. Yeah. So after two and a half years of exile in England, he went back to France. He made some good investments and he got super rich. This topsy-turvy life he has. But you know, I also just did something very uh, panglossy just now when I was like, hey, it was all for the better that he got exiled to England because he learned all of this stuff. <laughs> He really thought England was awesome. So much so that he talked about how much better it was than France. And guess what? That didn't go over well. So his book was banned and burned and Voltaire had to flee Paris yet again. This time he hit out with his lover, Emily du Chatelet in Champagne in France. I'm glad you clarified that it's Champagne in France. I was, I was like, ooh, she hung out in Champaign-Urbana where I went to the college. Let me take a quick off-road on uh, Madame du Chatelet for Okay, a second, yeah, let's though. do it. I looked at my humanities book, uh, my old textbook, and there's a portrait of her in there from a female artist, Marianne mm -hmm. Loire. She's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. In this paragraph, it says, she herself deserves attention as one of the liberated women of 18th century France. Forced into an early marriage with an unintellectual nobleman, she astonished Parisian society by exiling herself to a small town to devote herself to intellectual pursuits. She was a mathematician who wrote several treatises on natural philosophy as well as mathematics. While Voltaire lived with her, they observed a rigid schedule filled with scientific experiments, studies, and theatrical performances put on by themselves and their visitors. Yeah. The short story by Voltaire Micromegas might have been originally planned as a magic lantern show that they would have conducted themselves. Oh, wow. So it had a scientific basis to it, too. Yeah, yeah. going to do it. Like tell the story and have lights and show the planets mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So really cool person. Uh, oh, yeah. Chalet. He started getting wise about being a little too out with his writing and he needed mm -hmm. to be a bit more clever about it. At this point, when he was living with Emily, he got into Isaac Newton's writing and also the philosopher Leibniz. Now, Leibniz wrote about optimism, or at least his version of it. His idea is that there is a static worldview. There really is no change. Man is as he should be. God is doing his thing. If God is all good, then why? 
why is there evil? Well, guess what? There is no evil, really. It just seems like it's evil to us because we're mortals and we don't see the big picture. From God's point of view, our world is the best of all possible worlds. He and Emily wrote, like you said, studied together and worked together for years. He wrote about the French Civil Wars, religion, philosophy, science, you name it. He was really keen on the idea of separation of church and state as well. One of the many things mm. he wrote about that we actually end up seeing manifest in the founding of the United States. Yeah. In 1736, Frederick the Great, the crown prince of Prussia, was super into Voltaire and they started writing back and forth. They were pen pals. <laughs> Uh, Voltaire moved to Holland a few months to hang out with some scientists. Then he went to Brussels for a time. Then in Berlin, he actually met Frederick the Great. He got on so well with them that the French government wanted him to join Frederick's court as an envoy and a spy. Yes. Oh, I mean, I guess that's when you write letters to absolutely everybody in Europe every day, then eventually you're going to make some pretty good connections, I guess. I guess so. So in 1744, his relationship with Emily just kind of petered out or they had different interests, yeah. don't know. But he hooked up with his niece, Marie. These people who are unorthodox, you're like, ah, so great. And then they always do one thing that pushes it too far. You know, <laughs> like, there's always mm. one thing you go, oh man, <laughs> we were pushing boundaries, but I didn't mean that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they were together until he died. So many years, they were a couple. So I guess, yeah. who am I to judge? He moved around a lot and then ended up in Geneva in 1755, then uh, Fernie in 1758, which uh, is where he wrote Candide. And that was published in 1759. He returned to Paris in 1778. The first time he'd been there in 25 years, mostly to see the opening of his latest tragedy, Irene. But he got ill and he died just a few months after that. Crazy life. There's a lot uh, more that oh my might God. pop up as we go along. Yeah, I'm. that's what? the short version of it, dude. This guy's life was crazy. Yeah, I, one thing I, I'll point out, uh, Voltaire used his voice to advance a lot of social causes. Mm -hmm. He wrote a treatise on tolerance, which was in defense of a friend of his. But it concludes with this prayer that basically says, may all men remember that they are brethren. Even in this book, at one point it takes a pause, at one point the to call out the absolute inhumanity of slavery. Mm -hmm. I think it shows how the Enlightenment produced a lot of ideals that we still strive for, but having the idea and making it real clearly takes some time, like mm -hmm. a few hundred years, you know? Yeah. And if we're comparing Voltaire and Lovecraft, I just thought in that perspective, that whole man of his time defense of racism, it does wear a little thin. Oh yeah, well... Yeah. When Voltaire basically was calling that shit out as stupid in 1750. You know, I don't want to jump into all that stuff, but mm -hmm. I'm just saying these radical ideas of tolerance were quite available. And yeah. I'm positive that Lovecraft read that stuff. Yeah, of course he was into this. And so for some reason it didn't click. Well, it's just like you with the, the niece thing. He went, I love the Enlightenment. No, not that. Not that. <laughs> Too far. But let's talk about Candide. Yes, and if we're going to cover this over four episodes, I mean, we're already running pretty long yeah. here. We have to rip through about 10 chapters an episode. Probably not going to happen in this one. No. Some of them, they're pretty fun to get through. Uh, luckily, they're very short and pithy, very funny. It's not an accessible text. In fact, a lot of it's pretty juvenile a lot of the time. I mean, he, I like he's it. got a funny, goofy sense of humor. It's also satirical about the era it's written in, so it's very reference-heavy. The Norton version I have has all the footnotes, so you can go through and check those all out. But you can also just forget about all of it and plow right through and you'll still really enjoy it. Yeah. Candide is a good-natured lad who lives in the castle of the Baron of Thunder Ten Trunch in Westphalia, a real place, part of northern Germany. Candide was 
the son of the sister of the Baron. His father wasn't pure blood enough, so she never married him. And we still use the word in English. Uh, you know, I'm being candid with you. Oh, right. Yeah. We mean it as genuine, honest, without artifice. It's important that this is also a shorthand expression of John Locke's philosophies. Mm -hmm. And a central question of the book that's presented in the intro to this Norton Critical is, do we learn from experience? Candide tells the story of a young man setting out on a journey. This is an archetypical template much favored in the 18th century. Typically, the hero goes on a journey that is metaphorical as much as real, undergoing experiences that form him as a man. Behind this fictional model is the English philosopher Locke, whose essay concerning human understanding from 1689 taught empiricism, the idea that truth is discovered through experience and experiment rather than being something innate. That is perhaps the key concept in the 18th century movement of ideas that we call the Enlightenment. The moment, as Kant put it, of man's emergence from self-imposed immaturity. Henceforth, he said, man should dare to know. In this perspective, Candide, whose name means white in Latin, Candidus, recalls Locke's blank slate, tabula rasa, on which experiences are notched up. But how much does Candide really learn from his experience? I thought that was just a great yeah. uh, understanding of what this character is all about as we go in. And I also want to point out that joke about his father not being purebred enough is the first solid joke of the book that's right there in the first paragraph. We heard it at the top. Yeah. It says because he'd been able to prove only 71 quarterings, he couldn't marry the Baron's sister. A quartering is a division in your family tree. So being able to prove 71 quarterings means you can prove 2,000 years of uninterrupted <laughs> nobility. But because she can prove 72, yep. not good enough. Yep. And that is somebody who is hanging out with nobles all the time, but aware that they'll never be one of that social strata yeah. that makes a joke like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so arbitrary. And uh, the humor continues in that chapter as he describes the estate. It's actually really modest, you know, but to him, it's the greatest castle in the world because it's got a couple of windows. <laughs> You know, they even have a tapestry. <laughs> that joke works because we all understand this is the Garden of Eden, kind of. Of course, when you're a child, the house is the whole world. And so it really has that yes. very juvenile kind of perspective on things. Candide is instructed by the teacher Pangloss, who teaches metaphysico-theologico-sosmo-luni-gology. <laughs> and he's basically standing for Leibniz. He teaches that the world is the best of all possible worlds. Miss Kunagunde, the Baron's daughter, his cousin, spies on Pangloss with the maid, Paquette, engaged in, quote, experimental physics. I do believe there's a female genitalia pun in the name. <laughs> I'll let the French speakers inform us on that. Yes, please. Uh, but there's so many funny things. I think that the end of this chapter is a great example of the tone in the book. As she was returning to the castle, she met Candide and blushed. Candide blushed too. She greeted him in a faltering tone of voice and Candide talked to her without knowing what he was saying. Next day, as everyone was rising from the dinner table, Cunegonde and Candide found themselves behind a screen. Cunegonde dropped her handkerchief. Candide picked it up. She held his hand quite innocently. He kissed her hand quite innocently, with remarkable vivacity, grace, and emotion. Their lips met, their eyes lit up, their knees trembled, their hands wandered. The Baron of Thunder Tent Tronk passed by the screen, and taking note of this cause and effect, drove Candide out of the castle by kicking him vigorously on the backside. Cunegonde fainted. As soon as she recovered, the Baroness slapped her face, and everything was confusion in the most beautiful and agreeable of all possible castles. 
So it's got like a Three Stooges ending. Just the fact she fainted, woke up, then got smacked in the face is such an encapsulation of the cruelty that you're about to witness oh, in this boy. story. I mean, it's just a great opening. And that gets us into the second chapter. What happened to Candide among the Bulgars? Now, Bulgars is believed to be aimed at the Prussian troops of Frederick the Great. Supposedly, they're all pederasts. <laughs> He had this really good relationship with Frederick the Great, but then they fell out and then eventually they, right. make, they became friends again. But yeah, he's like Poe in that he's settling all sorts of literary scores in this. Yeah. Book, some of which we don't yeah. necessarily understand. No, but Candide is starving to death and he's weak, but he's found by two men who feed him and they give him some money and they trick him into toasting the king of the Bulgars. And they say, right now you're in the army. You're going to join us. And he's like, I don't want to join an army. It's like too bad. And they beat him and they whip him into shape. He talks about how he's he's beaten 20 times the first day and then only 10 times the second day and so on and eventually he figures yeah. out what's going on except one day he goes for a walk without asking anybody then he gets arrested and he's forced to choose between execution or running the gauntlet which is like having two lines of men that just beat the crap out of him he has to go back and forth between them so he argues i don't want to choose either of them because a human has free will so he thinks oh i got it i just made the argument but of course that doesn't hold any water <laughs> which is again kind of pointing out the irrelevance of philosophy at times right so after running the gauntlet his skin is nearly whipped off of his body and he's dying the king of the bulgars happens to see this hears that candide is a metaphysician and ignorant of the world so he pardons him candide gets medical attention and he is nursed back to health just in time to fight in a war for the bulgars against the abers <laughs> it's so funny i think when the when the king kind of pardons him, it says, and this will be remembered forever and written about in poems. And it's just funny because you're going, I don't know who this king is. That's clearly <laughs> not true. This is Monty Python level absurd, Candide, yeah. because in this chapter, all of his skin is whipped from his body till he's just running around like he's in Clive Barker's Hellraiser. <laughs> And then somebody gives him some ointment and he heals up in like three days yeah. like it's a Nintendo game, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it, it tells you the world of this book is absurd. But it lines up pretty accurately with how the real world is absurd. You know, he's recruited into this army because of his height. Yeah. He just fits the suit. He's five foot five. <laughs> it just shows the absurdity of it right at the start. It doesn't matter what side he joins, what the cause is. None of this is for anything. Yeah. And that gets us into chapter three, how Candide escaped the Bulgars and what became of him. The war is a bloody mess. Candide, who was trembling like a philosopher, hid himself as best he could while this heroic butchery was going on. I was like, man, heroic butchery. Yeah, it's, you know, the muskets swept away from this best of worlds, nine or 10,000 rascals who are cluttering up its surface. Yeah. It's this uh, satirist technique of stating very simply what these people are doing. Yeah. A lot of things that we do in life, if you just say them in the simplest terms, you go, wow, that sounds really insane. Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's really yeah. insane. I mean, there's dead soldiers on both sides, dead innocents, men, women, and children. It's just a big bloodbath. And for what? Candide is able to escape to Holland. There, a Protestant order is talking about the value of charity. And he asks Candide if he supports the good cause. And Candide thinks back to the teachings of Pangloss. And he says, there is no effect without a cause. The order goes, wait, do you think the Pope is the Antichrist? And Candide goes, I don't know the Pope but I'm hungry, so can I have some food? And the orator curses him, and then the orator's wife takes a bucket of crap and dumps it on his head. It's essentially Facebook, by the way. <laughs> do, you, do you have this opinion? 
no then all of this other stuff is true about you get out the bucket of poop you know it's just that everything's packaged into a system and you have to agree with the left one or the right one you can't have nuanced belief no you know no so there's the anabaptist which is a, a different branch of protestantism jacques takes pity on candide and he gives him a job in his rug factory. Jacques is actually a pretty good guy. Things are going to really work out for him, I'm guessing, because he's such a good guy and he's, he's always helping out people. But at this point, Candide, his faith is renewed in the teaching of Pangloss because he had to go through all these things to get to this great place where he's got this job. And I guess this into chapter four, how Candide met his old philosopher tutor, Dr. Pangloss, and what came of it. So one day, Candide finds a deformed beggar in the street. His teeth are falling out as he talks. Like the guy's really messed up. And then Candide realizes that the beggar is his old tutor, Pangloss. The previous chapter three, it's the first example of him using the chapter headings as a joke. Yeah. So it says, Candide suddenly met this man, his nose is falling off, he was disgusting. And then the chapter goes, how Candide met his old philosophy yeah. tutor, Dr. Pangloss. <laughs> but that, the way that it's written, like I said, it just keeps you reading chapters. It's a punchline, yeah. And you go, okay, I got to find out how okay. this happened. And, and then it just you know, leads, it. Yeah, it leads into the next one. So it turns out, soon after Candide was booted out, the Bulgars attacked the castle, killed the Baron and his wife and his son, and raped Kunigundi and then gutted her. They didn't leave one stone upon another, not a barn, not a sheep, not a duck, not a tree. But don't worry, we had our revenge because we did this. The Abari did the same thing to a neighboring, you know, <laughs> castle that belonged to a Bulgar. Like that makes it okay. It's the futility of revenge. Oh, yeah. So Pankalos explains that he got syphilis from Paquit, the maid. And it's slowly mm -hmm. killing him. Candide asks, well, okay, you had all this philosophy. Is this still the best the world can be? Isn't this disease like the work of the devil? Pangloss says, not at all. It is an indispensable part of the best of worlds, a necessary ingredient. If Columbus had not caught on an American island this sickness, we should have neither chocolate nor cochineal. He's able to trace his syphilis from Paquette all the way back to Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Uh, which is funny. All these people talk to each other somehow. They had this very modern chain of informing yeah. each other about their venereal disease because he can trace it back. But he's basically saying we wouldn't have chocolate without Columbus's inhumanity. Yeah. It's that daily struggle of it's all for the best. Things suck, but it was for a greater plan that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. The thing about that that's such a complicated philosophy, actually, is it's easy to lampoon, but at the same time, take the word best out. And it almost approaches Lovecraft's philosophy. Why did these terrible things happen to you? You're insignificant. It doesn't matter. It's all for some greater thing that you're not privy to. That's actually kind of true, you yeah, know? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, not, not necessarily greater, just complicated. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you take the superlative out of mm -hmm. it and say it's not for the best of all worlds, but if it's just for the world or just for the universe, if you take yourself away from the center of it, then some of the things that Pangloss is saying aren't so insane. You know, yeah. it's the idea that he puts it in this. The reason the book is called Optimism is because he's lampooning this idea that it's all for the best. Yeah. Well, it's all for something. <laughs> yeah, not but you can't but also this idea of intelligent design of looking at the structure and then saying it's evidence of intent is totally crazy mm. and he's pointing that out too obviously so candide goes to jacques and explains uh who pangloss is and jacques ag agrees to find a doctor to help him and like you said in this world he can just cure some syphilis you just get a doctor and he's got some of that video game ointment. yeah exactly yeah. but unfortunately even though he's cured he still loses an eye and an ear jacques hires pangloss as a bookkeeper and he decides that he's going to take candide and pangloss 
on a journey, a business trip to Lisbon. Jacques, of course, doesn't agree with this whole best of possible worlds thing. He thinks man has corrupted nature. God didn't give man cannons and bayonets. He made them to destroy himself. Now, while thinking about this on the ship, just outside of Lisbon, it's hit by a storm. In this intro, it says the shipwrecks, chance meetings, and amazing coincidences are spoofs of adventure novels. This is a novel of ideas, but also a novel about novels. Yeah. So Voltaire is doing some podcasty things <laughs> that we do here, where he's satirizing the form as he talks about it. Chapter five, Tempest, Shipwreck, Earthquake, and what happened to Dr. Pangloss, Candide, and the Antibaptist Jacques. The storm rages and Jacques saves a sailor who's about to go overboard, but in doing so, he goes overboard. And then the sailor that he just rescued, he's like, hey, whatever. Doesn't <laughs> no. do anything. Oh, maybe so mad. So the ship sinks and only Pangloss this crappy sailor and Candide survive and they make it to shore and they discover that Lisbon's been hit by a terrible earthquake. During all the chaos in the city, the sailor just ignores all of the screaming people, bloody, dying in the streets, gets drunk and finds a sex worker and has sex with her. As these people are dying, Pangloss and Candide, they decide to help the wounded. And Pangloss, trying to comfort an injured person, tells them that this earthquake is all for the best. But a nearby inquisitor hears this and accuses him of heresy because an optimist cannot believe in original sin. But obviously, the fall of man into sin, you know, with Adam and Eve and all, all that, proves yeah. that there is a better world. Pangloss tries to argue with this inquisitor, and that gets us into chapter six, how they made a fine audit of fay to prevent earthquakes and how Candide was whipped. After the earthquake had destroyed three-fourths of Lisbon, the sages of that country could think of no means more effectual to prevent utter ruin than to give the people a beautiful auto de fe. For it had been decided by the University of Coimbra that the burning of a few people alive by a slow fire and with great ceremony is an infallible secret to hinder the earth from quaking. <laughs> we should stop there at, at chapter six. We'll get into that next time, but it's such a good transition because we were covering Clark Ashton Smith. The auto de fe was coming up. That's uh -huh. why Nathair left yeah. because he was afraid they were going to do that to him. Mm -hmm. It's when they burn people you know, up as a means to assert some control over the world. Now, the Lisbon earthquake was a real thing. Yeah. In combination with subsequent fires and a tsunami, the earthquake almost totally destroyed Lisbon and adjoining areas in 1755. And... An auto de fe was done in Lisbon <sighs> in 1756 in June. Voltaire wrote a poem about the Lisbon earthquake. It says, if the miseries of individuals are merely the byproduct of this general and necessary order, then we are nothing more than cogs which serve to keep the great machine in motion. We are no more precious in the eyes of God than the animals by which we are devoured. Clearly, Voltaire was disturbed by this notion that suffering is just part of the plan. And I just want to say one more thing. Last year, I was idly reading about the 1750s, as you do. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled across this. May 16th, 1750, two weeks after police in Paris arrest six teenagers for gambling in the suburb of Saint Laurent, rioting breaks out when a rumor spreads that plainclothes policemen are hauling off small children between the ages of five to ten years old in order to provide blood to an ailing aristocrat. Over the next two weeks, rioting breaks out in other sections of Paris. Uh -huh. Police are attacked, including one who is beaten to death by the mob until order is restored and police reforms are announced. And when I read that, I went, that feels like the world we're living in too. Yeah. Whoa. That's <laughs> why this book has been in print for 250 years, is that it is as true, unfortunately, now as it was then. Yes. Aldous Huxley famously said about this book, and here's a good thing to conclude with. He wrote, but read the book today. You feel yourself entirely at home in its pages. It is like reading a record of the facts and opinions of 1922, which is when Aldous was writing this. Nothing was ever more applicable, more completely to the point. 
the world in which we live is recognizably the world of Candide and Cunegonde. Couldn't say it better myself. Yeah. That's why this is such an effective novel. I want to thank our reader once again. Yeah, Levi, thank you so much. And go check out his music, Loot the Body at Bandcamp. It's awesome. Makes you good at sex. I've said it before and I'll say it again. <laughs> I want to thank some patrons, starting with Leslie Adams. I'd like to thank Philadelphia Phil. I'd like to thank Matthew Levine. I'd like to thank George Bell. Travis Wright, thank you so much. David Smith, thank you. Damian Keyes, thanks. I'd like to thank Bill Patrickin. Graham Arnott, thank you so much. Lastly, I'd like to thank Carl Forward Slash. Carl Forward Slash, who can forget? <laughs> Carl Forward Slash. You all are great. We're going to be back with more Voltaire. That's all we got for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Here on HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!